Behind the Lens. And for those, you'll hear more of this. Um, I'm playing with toys today. We have a plethora of good dinosaur toys here, including a talking Butch the T-Rex voiced by Sam Elliott himself. Uh, later in the show today, you will actually hear uh, some of the press day interviews I had with Sam Elliott, Jeffrey Wright, Raymond Ochoa, Anna Paquin, and A.J. Buckley, as well as director Pete Sohn and producer uh, Denise Reem. But first, welcome again. Uh, week of Thanksgiving. Uh, very thankful to have all of you as listeners and viewers out there. My name is Debbie Elias, uh, MovieSharkDeBlore.com. You can find my movie reviews and interviews all over the place. Uh, Culver City Observer, Delray News, Beacon Times, Chain Examiner, um, and on YouTube with Behind the Lens. Every week we uh, do a three-camera video shoot that is beautifully shot by my DP, Jordan Johnson, and edited thereafter. Uh, we're also on iTunes after today's show airs live. Uh, it's available as a podcast on iTunes, generally by tonight or tomorrow morning, plus uh, also on the Adrenaline Radio archive and my website and a few other places that we have learned are downloading uh, video and audio. But today's show, it's a looser show, a lot of interview clips today, you have been warned, but this is all about the good dinosaur and another what has become uh a part and parcel with Pixar animation now, a new short film, uh, Sanjay Super Team, that precedes The Good Dinosaur. So you're in for a real treat. We also have joining us live at 11.30, very excited about this, is film is documentarian Delilah Vallott. Delilah has made this incredible documentary uh, that's also a lot of fun and it's very eye-opening called Can You Dig This? I know most of you, you're hearing Can You Dig This, you're thinking it's some kind of hip-hop or 60s retro music uh, documentary. It is not. It is all about the urban gardening revolution that is taking hold of South Central Los Angeles. That's right. It's not, uh, it's not all bloodshed, violence, gang, gang banging, and uh, guns going off. A lot of people are picking up shovels and starting their own gardens community gardens private gardens and the guy that spearheaded that ron finley uh i was hoping ron would be able to join us today i don't think he is able to but we will have delilah at the half hour mark so stay tuned for that but first let's get in an animated mood uh and talk about sanjay's super team san as comes as no surprise with pixar they have pushed the envelope once again, not only with The Good Dinosaur, as you've heard over the past month, uh, hearing from the likes of production designer Harley Jessup and cinematographer Sharon Callahan, but also with this short film, Sanjay's Super Team. Uh, the director is Sanjay Patel. Sanjay has been on the Pixar team as an animator for a number of years. He joined Pixar in 96 uh, with Bugs Life, 
and he was animating. He has since worked on Monsters University, Mater's Tall Tales, Ratatouille, The Incredibles, Toy Story 2. And prior to coming to Pixar, he also worked at doing character layout for The Simpsons. So he's got an extensive background. He is also an acclaimed artist in his own right. Uh, he's a self-published uh, comic graphic uh, novel focusing on the iconography of Hindu deities. And it's that very iconography that he incorporates into the story of Sanjay's super team. And to give you a little background on the story, uh, Sanjay himself, he, he based this story on his life. Uh, he, growing up in 1980s in the United States, uh, his parents are, had come over from India of, of, uh, and uh, are Hindi. He wasn't too keen on the religious aspect of his life, as most kids are not at, uh, when they're six, seven years old. And Sanjay was more interested in Saturday morning cartoons and the superhero cartoons of the day. And there was a constant struggle between Sanjay and his father. Well, and what this, what Sanjay's super team does is it takes, bases it on the life of the real Sanjay, but then the little boy in, little Sanjay in the short film has a daydream while he is forced to pray with his father. And what he dreams of are... Hindu deities that turn into superheroes. So I, while I was up at Pixar last month, I had a chance to sit down uh, for a very enlightening and informative one-on-one -on -one with Sanjay Patel and his producer, Nicole Grindle, to talk about some of the elements that went into making Sanjay's super team. When you see the film this week when it opens before The Good Dinosaur, because you're all going to go running off to see it, and I know this, um, you will see incredible new uses of light, you will see a blend of uh, eye-popping colors, a technique called ghosting that creates a cosmic look within the film. It is just, it is eye-popping, it is magical, it is ethereal, it is, quite honestly, it is as exciting as any Avenger movie, but it has something that the live-action superhero movies don't have. You really feel the heart uh, of Sanjay that he put into the short. So, the first thing that I talked to Sanjay and Nicole about is just that color and lighting. And here's what they had to say. How did you develop, start it with the color palette, because I know the color palette is going to determine what you can do in terms of the lighting, your yeah. effects, and that ghosting and cosmic look. Mm -hmm. That's you. Be a director. There's a combination. <laughs> uh, I'll speak about the kind of the art philosophical side, and maybe you could speak about the technical side. How about that? I'll do my best. <laughs> okay, so first and foremost, I knew that I needed to sort of uh, respect the deities and their sort of color traditions. Mm -hmm. uh, luckily, uh, if you add up art, uh, RGB, red, green, blue, which are the three colors for our principal deities, mm -hmm. they in the light spectrum, they combine to make white light. And so I knew, first and foremost, this whole story kind of revolves around light, the light of the dia that is extinguished and then is uh, uh, lit again. And so I really wanted this sort of underpinning of the combination of these three colors creates this pure sort of light that the boy sort of realizes and appreciates at the end. So I kind of had that kind of secret esoteric sauce underpinning all of this. And then we had uh, Paul Abadilla, a beautiful sort of painter, he created 
a lot of sort of paintings that sort of started to explore this, as well as Chris Sasaki. He again interpreted, I was like, I wanted, you know how when you're in traffic and it's rained and you see all these little drops of rain on your windshield and what it does in terms of all the cars, in terms of the lights, neon, what, what neon looks like reflected on a windshield and droplets. That was the kind of garbage that I was kind of spewing to <laughs> Chris Sasaki, our director. It's like painting a prism. Kind of like prism, yes, what light yes. does in sort of prismatic form, precisely. Mm-hmm. And it was this kind of, all these kind of strange adjectives that I was kind of describing that got morphed and interpreted through art and then finally got handed to technical. Yeah, well, okay, I'm a producer, not a technical director, but... Um, but that's okay. So, I'm, <laughs> I'll speak in... You can fire them if they're not doing their job, so, you know. But the most right. blood was spilled exactly what you're, where you were talking about, so... Absolutely, and, and so, you know, that affected our lighting department. And moving backwards, as I mentioned before, um, the ghosting actually did give them pause initially. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a great supervising technical director, Darwin Peachy, who's really experienced. I mean, he's been at Pixar at least, I think he's like a 25-year veteran here. And so he was mature enough not to say absolutely not, um, and very quickly actually was able to execute that ghosting after we showed him the Samsara clip. Um, but he did say, whoa, I don't know how we're going to do that. And they always say that initially. Of course. Um, and, and, and again, the jewelry, we spent so many hours talking about how we're going to simulate the jewelry because everybody at Pixar wants to make everything as, as realistic as possible. And sometimes you have to say to them, Jewelry moves, but but we don't have to have every single bead move. Like, like move them as a group, and and you have to talk them back from Mm -hmm. making it like absolutely brilliant in a film that's entirely about jewelry or entirely Mm -hmm. about ghosting. (laughs) And and so we were able to pull them back to that, and and then they started doing these tests that were amazing. Um, And again, we had this lighting um, director of photography and our effects supervisor who were able to just work like this. Mm Um, and they had to work like that because of all all the effects were had to work within that lighting, and and was you know the, was informing the lighting and the lighting was informing the effects, and they were doing all this compositing work and lighting in order to iterate really quickly. That's one of the things that's hardest for us in our lighting process is that we do everything in camera, and um, they have to render it, and it takes 24 mm-hmm. hours to turn it around and say, yep, it's terrible, or it's great. You'd so, get maybe one or two frames versus all the frames, typically, yeah, yeah. with the way we like. So they started doing all of these various uh, com- composites so that we could iterate and say, that works, or that doesn't work, let's try it again, and like in a few hours they could bring something back to you. And what was happening that uh, kind of, I think, really, really kicked it towards something that we hadn't seen before is because uh, Charu Clark, our lighting soup, and Bill Wattrell, our effects soup, they were working in concert more than ever before, yeah. and they were giving me back every frame, every night. Yep. And then yep. my art director and I, Chris Sasaki, we could look at it and we could suddenly see something that was in progress that yeah. for their group would say, that's totally broken, it's not right. done. I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> that looks amazing. Right. That was the best. Chris and I would be like, oh, that's amazing. And they're like, no, 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 no. don't look at that. You're supposed, you weren't supposed to look at that. Right. We hadn't had a chance to address that. I'm like, no, that's great. Yes. All those lens flares, all those spikes of white hot light, yes, all yes. that blurriness, yeah. we want. And you yeah. don't expect to see lens flares in an animated film of any kind. Well, we do put them in. We definitely, lens flares been a part of our filmmaking since at least a book's life. I know, maybe Toy Story. Or, or how about how... Very, very, yes, very judiciously. Oh, here's, here's our little yeah. moment of lens flare, but to do it constantly. And to blow characters out. To really blast out yeah. the sides of characters, like yeah. you see. 
And blasting out the sides of characters, especially the Hindu deities, is exactly what you're going to see. And, and one of the interesting things that Sanjay has perfected within the construct, uh, the visual construct of the film, is the very squared um, shape of the real world as opposed to the very round uh, shape of, the, of Sanjay's dream world uh, with the gods. But we mentioned color, and Sanjay in color... Nicole and I are both of the opinion that he truly is a master of color. He may not have he may not have the same opinion of himself. Every, lots of blood was spilled for that, but we yeah. fought. Everybody was so thrilled with that. Oh, you're result. such an artist. I mean, that's what a lot of people said. They said, you know, to, to be to have a director who is such a particular mm-hmm. visual artist. You know, we have directors who are more storytellers or more animators. But to have someone who cares about every single pixel mm-hmm. was incredibly challenging and incredibly satisfying, both at the same time. Well, as, an, art- as okay. an artist, would you consider yourself a painter of light? Uh... No, color is my undoing. That is my undoing. He, every time he says it, you're so like, he, he knows color. And he says it. That's how you know it's he's so brilliant hard. at it. Because it's never good enough. Line. I could control line, <laughs> color, like Dice, uh, yeah. Robert, Dice Sasumi, uh, uh, one of the brilliant painters that helped us. They can control. And Robert, he did our first concept piece. Robert they, they can control color and light. Mm-hmm. I can control line. It's my wish, my lifelong wish, is to be able to sort of approach controlling color. Well, I think Nicole and I are right, and I think all of you will agree when you see Sanjay's super team that Sanjay does, he is masterful with color, and especially when used in light. One of the designs that is very striking within the animation is the use of a lacy filigree backdrop to the Hindu deities with light streaming from behind as the deities themselves have this ghosting cosmic light effect. It is, it is simply stunning, and I do hope all of you see it and enjoy it and think about, you know, Sanjay talking about and Nicole talking about what went into this visual design. But something else that's really, that I found quite fascinating was that the horizon line was moved uh, within the within the film. Uh, typically, when you're looking at animated films, you're looking at it straight on. Everything is happening at eye level. Here, Sanjay moves the horizon line, essentially tilting the camera down, moving it into something that, that resembles, in many cases, a 1930s, 40s film noir dutching of the angle. Uh, so it widens out the perspective and it gives a very unique flavor and great feeling when you look at it, especially not in a dark nourish light, but with the brightness, with the filigree, with the magentas, with the neon turquoise. It is, glo- it is technicolor glorious, quite honestly. So I asked Sanjay and Nicole about moving that horizon line and their whole idea behind the philosophy behind it and the challenges of it. Well, we can t- continue to work on camera well into the process. I mean, usually we, we lock our cameras, we send it into animation, we're more or less done. We do some fixes, but this guy had us going and going, right? I mean, we. And philosophically, we wanted mm-hmm. the apartment to be as horizontally yes. driven as possible, mm-hmm. everything to be 90s, okay, boxes. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as I was freed out of that immigrant sort of 
trap and I was in, you take our character into mm-hmm. his dream, well, let's really have all this sort of movement and we wanted nothing to feel like um, nothing was square. Nothing was square angles. Everything right. was rounded and had circumference. Mm-hmm. We wanted that. That was all intentional. The square versus the circle was a philosophical uh, principle that underpinned all the art direction. The whole beginning is about squares. The whole middle is about circles. Mm-hmm. And that's underlying in the philosophy. The philosophy of the East is about uh, the sort of many lives in the philosophy of uh, the West or the Occident is kind of this... Uh, Let's just butt against everybody. Or <laughs> <laughs> one life. It's A to B versus infinity. infinity. Again, philosophical, esoteric, but <laughs> it gave our, our team this jumping off point. Mm-hmm. And something else that is incorporated uh, within the visual design with the structure of Sanjay's super team is also the, the cultural dance movements that inspire the movements of the three Hindu deities. Um, there are three different styles of dance that are incorporated, uh, with each deity having their own, as well as each deity have, embodying their own color. For example, Vishnu is always blue, representing perseverance and balance. Durga has power and grace. Warmer aspects of color comes through. Uh, then Hamaman, uh can transform on the fly and is a, a monkey demigod um, that is embraced with greens. Um, and each one encompasses the different dance movements of various Hindi dances. It is really stunning, stunning to look at. Uh, but beyond the visuals, there is a great emotional resonance here in the relationship of the father and son. So every as as with everything Pixar does it hits you in your heart it looks beautiful it pushes the envelope and you're going to love it and that opens on Wednesday ahead of The Good Dinosaur right now we're going to take a commercial break then we'll be back and start hearing from our cast and crew of The Good Dinosaur Behind the Lens is sponsored in part by the Culver City Observer. Located in the heart of Screenland, Culver City Observer is available in print and online at www.culvercityobserver.com. And we are back. And I have to, I have to say here, very good selection of promos and, and commercials there, Brian. You know, he's he's bowing in the booth. He's not on headphones or speaker, but he's making faces at me. Um, because number one, fantastic show it, on Fridays. Take a listen to the super organizer, James Lott. He, is, he airs uh, 10 to 11 on Fridays here on Adrenaline Radio. And I'm so thrilled that we had uh, Bonnie Plants, considering that we ha- are going to talk gardening in a little bit. Um, perfect. Good job, Brian. Good job. But right now we're going to talk about one of my most favorite people on the planet. Um, and I know some of my colleagues out there are probably laughing. Uh, we're going to talk about Sam Elliott as a, as a T-Rex. That's right. Sam Elliott is a T-Rex and he voices a T-Rex in The Good Dinosaur, uh, as well as Anna Paquin. Uh, Sam's T-Rex is named Butch. He is a cowboy T-Rex. 
Anna Paquin plays Butch's daughter, Ramsey, and A.J. Buckley voices Butch's son, Nash. And these are just three of the little adventurers that our hero, Arlo, and his friend Spot meet up with along their adventures uh, trying to find a way home. Uh, for those of you that have not listened or who have been under a rock or who haven't read or anything about The Good Dinosaur or seen any trailers, The Good Dinosaur is essentially a uh, story of a boy and his dog, but in reverse. Here, the dinosaur is more or less a boy. Dinosaur is Arlo. The little boy, is more or less a dog, is Spot. And the whole setup is, what if the asteroid that destroyed the Earth didn't hit the Earth? Uh, what if the dinosaurs ruled the Earth to this day? What would happen? And as we've talked about in prior weeks, and as you've heard from Sharon Callahan and Harley Jessup, you know, everything here is based upon the imagery and Mother Nature, weather, colors, lighting, um, the whole ge uh, geological breakdown of Snake River, Snake River, Snake River Valley area, Idaho, Wyoming, uh, that whole beautiful, beautiful region of the United States. So in our recent press day, uh, had a chance to sit down and talk with some of our dinosaur people and uh, had a chance to ask them all how did it feel to get cast as a dinosaur in The Good Dinosaur? How exciting was it for all of you when Pixar comes knocking at your door and says, hey, we want you to voice T-Rex dinosaurs? Pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, doesn't get any better than that in terms of the animation world. Nope. I was saying in the other room, it's like uh, getting a call saying that you made the Olympic team. You know, it's like you do, that call just doesn't. doesn't I, I, I told my agent, I thought she was joking. I was like, are you sure it's, it's the right AJ Buckley? Like, are you sure they want me? And she was like, I, there's only one AJ Buckley. So. <laughs> well, they've turned it, totally turned it upside down, haven't they? I mean, in terms of the sensibility of these guys, you know, I mean. They're still meat eaters, I suppose they are. I mean, they're, they're I'm not sure how to put it, but they're not typical of any T-Rex that's ever been represented on film or in animation that I'm privy to. You know, and I think that's part of the charm of this thing. You know, certainly all the overriding themes that are involved, and whether it's the T-Rexes or the kid on his journey, you know, I mean, it's... This is about real life. There's a, there's a lot of themes in here that ring true for families and parents and children. And, you know, there's, there's great things to be taken away from this. You know, I mean, it's one thing to be able to entertain people, and we're blessed that we get to do that. I've always felt. But it's another thing to inform people or to provoke people or, you know, make them think. So after I had a chance to ask Sam and Anna and AJ about being cast in The Good Dinosaur, what does our hero, Raymond Ochoa, who voices Arlo, think about it, as well as Jeffrey Wright? Jeffrey Wright's getting a lot of screen time right now. Um, any Jeffrey Wright fans out there, any fans of The Hunger Games, you know he is back in Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 2 in theaters right now. 
uh, reprising his role as BT. And here he is as a Papa Apatosaurus to Arlo. So, how did they feel about being cast? How exciting was it for both of you to be asked to be a part of The Good Dinosaur? Uh, well, I think it was... Uh, um, in that uh, I live uh, vicariously through these things with my children, it was um, intensely exciting uh, for me because it was was so for them. Yeah, it was, um, uh, you know, these the, beyond the popularity of the movies um, and, you know, the uh, prominence that they have for, you know, kids my kids' age and Raymond's age now, they're really good stories, you know. It's, it's really, um, you know, uh, um, seriously well-considered um, storytelling. And the themes of this one, uh, which are so universal and fairly obvious around uh, parenthood and family and love and responsibility and nurturing, all of these things are so resonant, you know. So that's, that's, really, um, that's really very gratifying to be a part of. On top of that, uh, it makes me, you know, the Hunger Games went a long way in this regard. But now a Pixar movie makes me even that much cooler with um, the kids, my kids, and, and their friends at school. So that's always advantageous. And what about for you, Raymond? Well, I mean, I, th- I think I can speak for every actor that sometime in their life they've come across a point where they're like, I want to be in a Pixar film. <laughs> and I trust me, I, I have three older brothers that are all actors. And every time they tell me, oh, my, wow, I can't believe you're in a Pixar movie. But, I mean, it really, in my eyes, it's really a dream come true because I have wanted to be in a Pixar movie for a while. I love Monsters, Inc. It's my favorite movie ever of all time. So just to be in a Pixar movie, it's just I'm so grateful for that, and it's just it's an amazing opportunity. I thank Pixar every day for giving me it. Well, you know, and, and let's just point something out there that I think Raymond may be changing his mind as to his favorite Pixar movie ever. I think uh, it's going to switch very soon from Monsters, Inc. to The Good Dinosaur. But then you have to wonder, you're excited, you're going to be a dinosaur. How do you prepare to be a dinosaur? So here's what Raymond had to tell us about preparing to be a dinosaur. Being of the still learning school age Mm -hmm. class, what kind of research and preparation do you do going into a film like The Good Dinosaur when you're going to be playing a dinosaur? Did you call on those things you learned earlier in elementary school mm-hmm. about dinosaurs and... Me, my current self. Your current yes. self, yes, <laughs> yes. You know, how do you prepare to get in that mindset of being a young dinosaur? Well, I mean, I have, I have great parents, and they're so helpful in everything I do. So, like, I, when I knew that I was an apatosaurus, they helped me on what it actually was. They helped me Google stuff. They helped me Google facts about it and, you know, good things about some, the thing and what it actually looked like because I had no idea what it looked like. I didn't know what an apatosaurus was at the time. But, you know, you kind of get to learn those things. And I looked it up. I was like, wow, okay. And I saw a picture of it. I was like, this, kind, this dinosaur doesn't look that mean, but, you know, it doesn't look kid-friendly at the same time either. If you just saw that thing walking around, you'd be scared of it. So being a Pixar movie, you kind of do have to be able to research enough work to make it look like and sound like 
a dinosaur that's kid-friendly for kids to, you know, be able to listen to and be like, okay, I'm not scared of that voice. And <laughs> my voice was really high at the time, so no one would be scared of that voice. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, I got, I got through it. I mean, people, after I watched it, I was like, wow, it actually, I really liked the, the outcome of it. And, you know, it, the schooling did work for it, being able to, you know, research stuff because I researched stuff that my parents didn't find either you know they they researched their own stuff I researched my own stuff and that's how it really happened it was, it was but I got a lot of research out of it I got a good idea of it and I think that was what really helped me get the part was because you know I did go in with the understanding of what it actually was rather than an average person who just you know says lines in front of a thing and be like oh, okay let's send it over and what's the most interesting thing that you remember learning about your character <laughs> what it actually looked like. <laughs> I think that was the most interesting. It could have looked like a Tyrannosaurus Rex for all I knew. I mean, I obviously knew it wasn't that, but I mean, yeah, it was it was really cool knowing what it looked like because after I found out what it what it was and what kind of animal it was or what kind of dinosaur it was, it, I got to see what it was and it was really cool cuz you know, having seen the long neck. What would you know it as a, a the dinosaur? Brontosaurus. Yeah, that. I don't know how to pronounce that. I know how to pronounce a patasaurus. I'm still trying to get the name that one right. But yeah, it was it was really cool to, to be able to see what it looked like. Yes, for all of us old school people that learned about dinosaurs ages ago, yes, the apatosaurus does greatly resemble the brontosaurus. So, you know, I understood exactly why Jeffrey, you know, knew what it uh, what it was. But... Besides Raymond, what about everybody else preparing to be a dinosaur? Now, I'm going to tell you right now, when I asked Sam Elliott, all he did was look at me, shake his head, and mouth, no. He didn't need to prepare. But for Anna Paquin and A.J. Buckley, they did their own kind of preparation. Now, earlier I asked Raymond about how he, did he prepare, did he do any research for his character of Arlo, and he did. He did extensive research into his dinosaur. Did you guys do any T-Rex research to prepare Honestly, to be wrestlers? Um, well, my kids have this really cool series of books called how does a dinosaur clean up his room? And how does a dinosaur take care of his cats? It's, it's those nice, I don't know if any of you guys have kids or have seen these. That's basically like using dinosaurs to teach important childhood lessons and life skills and morals. <laughs> so there's quite a lot of that um, in our household at the moment. Uh, and sort of had been for a while. Quite a lot of visits to museums. But generally it was kind of nothing to do with this, but sort of, you know, nice timing. What about you, Uh I was obsessed with dinosaurs as a kid. Uh, I, I was many times grounded for digging up the, my mom's beautiful backyard looking for fossils uh, and ruining my dad's toothbrush when I thought I found something and I needed to gently scrape the dirt off. <laughs> so I've been a, I was a big fan of dinosaurs back in the, in the day. <laughs> So, uh, I, 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 not that I know all the facts, but uh, I just geeked out, and, you know. Was you, were, you were dinosaur ready. I was ready. I, 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 wait, I worked my whole life for this moment to be a dinosaur. <laughs> so, and now, now we go from talking about A.J. Buckley digging up his mother's backyard looking for dinosaur bones to Delilah Vallot, who is hung out with a lot of really cool gangster gardeners who are digging up dirt in South Central L.A. 
Hello, Delilah. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Oh, I am. I'm so thrilled that you could join us today. I love this documentary. I love this documentary. It is a glorious bright spot uh, for a culture that people think, you know, they have such negative connotations for. But this is truly shifting the nature of South Central L.A. It is true. Um, the few gardens that are there so far are definitely making a difference. And thanks for calling the, the, the movie inspirational because that was the goal. So um, I'm happy to hear that. <laughs> how, did you, how did this idea come to you about doing a documentary on the urban gardening phenomenon that's happening? Um, it's kind of a uh, triple fold. I came across urban gardening like the rest of us who are all sort of part of this zeitgeist. We all love natural food and, and all that stuff, but also um, it's an interracial child. My mom comes from Hollywood. She's a sort of eclectic lady that brought me up there, but I also would spend time with my black father who was from South L.A., up until the time I was about nine years old, and I definitely noticed a bit of a disparity between the two areas, um, even as a kid. And then when I got older, I wanted to go back and see what the you know differences were and had also come across Ron Finley's story via the producers at Delirio Films and was highly interested in his diatribe about you know changing lives through gardening and wanted to see if that was real or not, um, firsthand, and then capture it. Well, you know, and you do that through some extremely engaging people. You've got Spicy, who I just think he's just a kick, a kick in the butt. Kenya, that girl, she's going to go places if she stays on this path. The adorable eight-year-old Quimoni Lewis, oh my God, she is out there hustling and she she is all for gardening. And then the the charming Hosea and his friend Henry at the halfway house after they were released from prison. All of their stories are so resonant. They're so touching. And you really let us see the metaphor of the parallel of how somebody can grow as a person the same way that plants grow. And that is so connective. And so palpable when you watch this. And it's because of the individuals that you're focusing on. How did you go about finding them and selecting them to be in the documentary? It was quite a long journey, finding the characters for the movie. Um, it took a lot of research and a lot of time in gardens, <laughs> meeting people and talking to people a lot of time on the phone talking to various organizations and um, kind of just sort of taking a leap of faith and jumping off the edge with people that I feel, you know, drawn towards who are starting their first gardens, which was, that was also difficult in and of itself because there are people who might have been in the middle of a garden, but nobody wants to see a story about someone who's in the middle of their, their journey, we wanted to start mm -hmm. from the beginning. So I was starting out with people that I, I didn't know how it was going to turn out. Um, and so 
it was a lot of hard work and a bit of luck. <laughs> okay, if you had to pick a favorite out of the individuals you focus on, do you have one? You're going to get me in trouble. <laughs> it's, no. split, it's split four ways. They're, they're all my, my favorites in, in different ways, and, and what I love about them is that they all represent a different part of humanity. Mm-hmm. Like you said, Kimani, she's a spitfire, but she's only eight years old, and so you know, parents with young kids can really relate to her story, and, and kids can relate to her story. Mm-hmm. Um, Hosea, he's on the latter half of his life, and an older gentleman, and, and very charming. Um, and he, I, I, when I go to film festivals, I kind of can see the, the seniors in, in the audience really relating to him mm-hmm. as well as everybody else. And then Kenya and Spicy, early 20s, um, sort of, um, what is that, the Y generation now? I think so. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so um, they, they represent something really, really different, um, and that's relatable for, for early 20s. Mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, so many people, and one of the things that I love about Hosea, you have him in there, is so many people do think of, oh, their grandmother's garden, you know, that's, that's what you do when you retire. But here is a man who has been imprisoned for 30 years, and he gets, he gets out of jail and wants to live his life for the first time with a, a renewed growth and starts gardening for the very first time. This is, he's not looking at this as retirement. This is the start of his life. It's very true and something that he thought about a lot while he was in, in prison and what being able to plant means to him is, is freedom and something that reminds us all that we have the capability to do any day, every day, and that maybe we might take it for granted, I suppose. Mm-hmm. What kind of challenges did, because you follow this whole journey from the idea of everybody starting a garden, thinking they can't do a garden, realizing, hey, maybe I can do this, and you go to, you know, fruit and seeds and flowers you and Kumani making lots of money and counting her money which is the most enchanting part of the entire film I want you to know that Uh, I'll let her know too (laughs) but you know you're following them on this journey how what were the challenges like for you to go to spend that much time you know and following up after, what, uh, two months, three months, or however long the journey was? Um, well, I think, you know, first and foremost, doing a documentary, it's like, um, you know, this is my first doc, and I guess I had the assumption that everybody wanted to be on camera, and that is not true. <laughs> you know, we're in Los Angeles. I thought, sure, of course, they're just going to say yes right off the bat. But, you know, people didn't necessarily want to open up to me um, right away, so... I think the challenging part was actually realizing that I have to open up just as much as they do um, in order to to tell a story. And then also you set out to, you you have a thesis. You you say, I I believe that gardens make, make a difference in people's lives. And then some days aren't aren't easy for people and whether they have a garden and a supportive community around them or not and um you're going along with people 
and feeling their pain and and um, getting really close and feeling involved and, and sometimes wondering, you know, how, how is all this, this footage going to come together um, and create a, a cohesive story, cohesive mm-hmm. story. How much, how often did you check back with all of them once, you know, you got over the hurdle of them appearing on camera and once the gardens, you know, got started, how often did you check in and go back uh, to get more footage of the progress of the gardens and the individuals? I I pretty much stayed, I lived my life with people for about a year. Wow. Um, and since there's four characters, you know, that was like, you know, basically every day, um, just sort of making appointments with people. Hey, can, what are you doing today? Can I show up and hang out with you? Um, or, you know, if they have something going on and sometimes convincing people that things that are going on in their lives that are, just normal mundane act, mundane activities are actually interesting. You mm-hmm. know, what do you what do you want to come over for for that for? We're just having dinner, Delilah. I don't know. It's just interesting. <laughs> Can I come hang out with you? Um, so there was a lot of that and a lot of time in gardening, which, from a filmmaking perspective, since I I shot the thing um, that camera after a while, it was the C three hundred. It's supposed to be a very light camera. It gets kind of heavy and. <laughs> A lot of the time you're in the, the noonday sun with, you know, dirt in your shoes, and that from a physical perspective could get a little bit um, um, exhausting, Oh my! but well worth it. Oh, my God. Well, did you learn anything about gardening in this process? Do you have a green thumb? You know, I ironically have not started my own garden yet. I am waiting from the spring for the spring, which mm-hmm. is one thing that I did learn um, that that does kind of make it easier. And we're really lucky here in California um, that we've got weather that allows for planting year round. Um, and I, I did also learn that maybe we make it more difficult than it has to be, that it's something that's sort of innate for all of us that you know planting a seed and putting it in dirt and watering it does produce life Mm -hmm. and that plants want to grow ron finley says that all the time that plants want to grow and i've you know i've run across a lot of really highly capable intelligent people who are afraid of of tomatoes you know they're afraid (laughs) of plants and i don't i don't really know what it is but i it gave me a lot more um confidence that i i can can grow things and and produce a lot of goodness from it well you know and something that that i noticed um that in this this water challenge time in california is the judicious way in which everybody waters their garden they'll fill up you know they use the 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 adorable you know sprinkle you know watering cans that sprinkle it they're they're placing the water where it needs to be they're not flooding the whole the whole bed so it's so nobody can use the excuse of well we have to conserve water we can't have a garden. That's true, and I don't have the exact statistics, but I I did also come across that subject as far as how much water green grass takes versus um, you know edib- edible gardens, and my understanding is is that it's actually less, and that there are all kinds of things that people can do, i.e. gray water. Um, saving water from dishes if they want to get that fantastical about it. Um, but, yeah, I, I think that um, in, even in uh, drought, it is capable of having an environmentally sound um, garden. Now, did you sample 
any of the vegetables that were grown or any of the greens that Kumoni uh, actually grew since she was trying to get everybody to eat them? All the time. And I was so excited any time anybody gave me anything from their gardens because, you know, you're watching them grow these, these plants. And when it's a huge gift when somebody gives you something from mm-hmm. them. And 100% of the time it was better than anything that I've grabbed from the supermarket or the farmer's market. Mm-hmm. How instrumental was Ron Finley throughout your filming? Because Ron has, you know, such a handle not on the concept and on promoting the concept, and you just look at his garden and what he's inspired. I mean, it is, it literally is a Garden of Eden. And he's got it down to his own composting, and, you know, he talks about making, how you get your own seeds to germinate a new plant just from taking the seeds out of a tomato. Yeah, he he is the inspiration behind the movie and um, inspired me on a personal level. Um, and really, you know, he was there a lot watching cuts as we um, edited the movie mm-hmm. and would come back with his, his feedback. Um, and to me, that was also very important that, you know, the stories that we were telling um, were stories that, he felt related to what what his ultimate you know message is, um, which to me is that we we all are are empowered by this sort of sim- simple thing that we've gotten really far away from. He'd probably say it in in a lot cooler, more more charming <laughs> way than that. But yeah, he was the the um, the ultimate inspiration be- behind the movie. Well, I love his mantra that he repeated, you know, multiple times. He did it during, in the TED conferences that, which anybody that doesn't know what the TED conferences are, they are some of the coolest things out there. Uh, Technology, entertainment, design. It's about ideas worth spreading. It's held every year here on the West Coast. It's nonprofit, and they're fabulous. And I love his mantra where, you know, where you have him saying both, in talking to you individually and then up on stage at, at a conference, you know, don't pick up a gun, pick up a shovel and dig in the dirt. Yeah, and also, um, what does he say? Plant your, planting your own vegetables is like printing your own money. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's got a lot of really good ones that simplify what the issue is. Um, and ultimately, helping to in, empower all of us, Mm -hmm. no matter where we live. Well, you see the changes just within, you know, you see Spicy's whole attitude about life change in the course of having a garden. You see Kenya's whole attitude change once she gets involved and really puts her back into a garden. And And you hear the joy in their voices that, you know, life does spring. You know, it's there for the taking. And you see... It's all it takes is seeing another life grow to make your own grow. And you do a beautiful job of, you know, putting that out there for all of us. Thank you. Yeah, because it is a lot more than just about food. It's, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, surrounding ourselves with beautiful green stuff that just kind of makes us feel better Mm -hmm. every day. And then when you're Kumoni, you get beautiful green stuff in the ground and it turns into beautiful green stuff in your hand. 
when you when you sell it. Now I have to ask you, John Legend. Uh, I know a lot of people are making a big deal of that. John Legend is executive producing this. He's known for a lot of the work that he does um, for the greater good. And this definitely is a documentary that can be for the greater good for everybody. How did John get involved in this? Yeah, he saw an earlier cut of the movie and supported it right away, um, which I'm so appreciative of. Um, and that was through the the amazing producers at Delirio Films. Mm-hmm. Um, Raphael Mormor and Christopher Leggett, those guys are just real, really good at um, talking to people and reaching out. Um, so, yeah, that's how that, that happened. So now that you've made it through your first feature-length documentary, what did you learn about yourself as a filmmaker? Interesting question. <laughs> I feel like I... I I know for one that if I'm going to dive into another documentary, I, I have a much better idea of how much it, it takes to to produce one. And um, I feel like I'm a stronger storyteller um, because you, you sort of tell, as a director, you sort of you tell stories in, in retrospect almost when, when you're shooting a, a doc like this one. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how much stronger I am as a, a narrative filmmaker um, next project around. Now, do you have another project on your plate yet? I do. I have about five things that are <laughs> in the works, um, creatively in the works um, mm-hmm. at various stages. And um, I am... I'm not sure which one's going to unfold first, but, you know, in the creative field, you're not quite sure which thing is, is going to pop up. So I'm, you know, spending a lot of time working on those things to get them going. So now what, what are the release plans for Can You Dig This? Can You Dig This is actually coming out December 1st mm-hmm. on VOD and also theatrical on demand, where people can see the movie theatrically in any city. Mm-hmm. Is that being set up through um, Tug or one of the other uh, one of the other event companies similar to that, where people? Yeah, that one's Gather. This one's Gather. Yes. So they can just go online to the can. Uh, well, we, our website is www.canyoudigthisfilm.com mm-hmm. and they can just go to the screenings tab and type in their zip code and see which screenings are in their area. Well, and I I think it it's a valuable film for everyone to see and as we see in the in the credits which is why people need to sit through the credits of a film because you see these great snapshots of urban gardening that's being done in other cities all around the country. Yes, and I I feel like we're definitely part of a of a growing movement that's really great for for everybody. And so, um, if people are already gardeners, this sort of you know preaches their message for them. And if people are on the fence about gardening, this kind of helps people get inspired. Well, it definitely inspired me. And even though I can't grow a darn thing. 
I am actually going to try in the spring again with uh, some tomatoes or something. That's great. (laughs) Delilah, I can't thank you enough. I get it for the documentary and for being on the show today. Absolutely fabulous. And I hope you'll be back on when you have another project. Done. Wonderful. Thanks, Delilah. Thank you. Bye-bye. And that was Delilah Vlott, the director and documentarian of Can You Dig This? We're going to take a very quick break right now and come back with some more good dinosaur digging. Located in the heart of Screenland, Culver City Observer is the number one newspaper in Culver City, covering local news, politics, and community events, with sports by Mitch Chortkoff and movie reviews by Debbie Lynn Elias, Culver City Observer is the place to go to be in the know. When you think Culver City and the heart of Screenland, think Culver City Observer. When you think movies and movie reviews, think Culver City Observer. Culver City Observer, a division of Arizona Newspaper Group, is available in print and online at www.culvercityobserver.com. And we're back. If you uh, were listening, we had live with us Delilah Vallott, uh talking about can you dig this? Gardening. Gardening is good. And so is digging for dinosaur bones, as we heard A.J. Buckley talk until you get caught using your dad's toothbrush and digging up your mom's garden. But moving along with the good dinosaur, you know, Pete Sone is a driving force uh, behind this movie. It was this story was his brainchild um, and his vision. He is so inf- he is so joyous. It, it is infectious. He is enthusiastic when you hear him talk about the film. So I had to ask uh, our cast, what was it like working with Pete? And how did he help bring the dino out in each of them? Here's what Jeffrey Wright and Raymond Ochoa had to say. Well, Pete, he told me kind of, he, he was so helpful in telling us what the characters were, their backgrounds, their ideas. He told me, you know, my, what I was, that I was scared. I, for all I knew, I thought, you know, he was this like brave dinosaur because that's what I think dinosaurs are. I think they're brave and, you know, there's it, but that's not Arlo. He's not like that. So he informed me about that. He informed me about every other character, Papa and his close relationship. Eh? And, and, and then, uh, uh, what was the other part? There was one more. What's about the challenging? Okay, part. yes, sorry. Uh, what was challenging <laughs> was the fact that I had to bring out because I'm I'm a very open person. I'm very outgoing. So uh, to have a to have a dinosaur and talk like a dinosaur that's very not outgoing. He's very sh- scared. He's shy. He's not like how I am. So it was trying to it was trying to like you know that was that's when real acting had to come out because that's not me. So I you know I had to bring out like my old self because I was like that at one point. So I had to like reach into like really deep into my old self and that's how it would happen. It was really cool though. It was it was a fun experience. Peter uh, again it was was so um, it was just all living in, in his imagination. It was living in his head. I mean, he and, and as as Raymond describes, had just multiple levels of detail for every character and background. You know, he knew where Papa had gone to. You know, 
college, you know, <laughs> agriculture, tech, I think it was in Colorado. I mean, but no, I mean, it was just like unbelievable levels of detail. And again, I just can't overemphasize enough how, um, how he expressed it all through an, this, this like almost ed initially disarming or or kind of alarming innocence, you know, is really wonderful. He's like a genuinely, um, there's a genuine joy and you know, like simplicity of that joy um, that he expresses in describing this, uh, this, you know, this world to us and in working with us. It, I mean, it, you know, it is really seriously infectious, you know, and I think it, that's what's required to, um, you know, to, to tell a story like this. It, you can't fake it, you know. There's, there's a genuine, um, he's got this genuine uh, joy, but also a genuine sense of the ideals that are expressed through this, I think, live, you know, live within him and are very meaningful he to him. He's a very intelligent person. That's, that's what I got out of him. Yeah, that, that too. <laughs> that too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think we can hear... Sam Elliott as the last word on working with Pete Song. And the first thing I saw was words on the page. You see the scenes. Mm -hmm. You don't see the script. You just see the scenes that you're involved with. And uh, a rendering. There was a, you know, an eight by ten rendering of what this character looked like. But when he got into the studio with, with Pete, I didn't go up to Pixar to their facility up north. I did mine in L.A. and I did it in a day. But when you go in there and you meet this guy that is so enthusiastic and so specific in his vision, and he has this incredible ability to draw that vision out of the performers, then you know that's that, that's a real gifted director. And he's, you know, as you saw, undoubtedly through talking to him, I mean, he is a very enthusiastic individual and a very sweet guy. He's the right guy to do this thing. It may be his first, but it's certainly not going to be his last. And uh, I think all of you are going to agree with Sam's assessment. This will not be Pete Sohn's last uh, animated film for Pixar. Uh, you're going to fall in love with this one, and I personally would like to see a sequel. And let's... And it's time to go. On a final roar from Sam Elliott as Butch the T-Rex, that's it. We'll be back next week. We've got a bunch of guests coming up for the next month. And we'll see you then on Behind the Lens.